This is the Oanda Podcast. Brought to you by Jazz FM's Business Breakfast. Welcome back to the Oanda Market Insights Podcast. Brought to you with a Jazz FM Business Breakfast and now available on iTunes and wherever you find your podcasts. I'm Johnny Hart. Each week we review the stories that made the business and market headlines. And this week we talk to Alfonso Esparza, Senior Market Analyst for Oanda in Toronto. Good afternoon from London and good morning to you, Alfonso. Hello, Johnny. Good morning. Happy to join you. It's been uh, quite a busy week. The Fed Reserve raising interest rates for the third time this year wasn't a big surprise, but nonetheless, it was one of the headlines. Uh, Yes, it was uh, very highly anticipated. The market had already priced it in at 25 basis points. It was almost at 100%. So the market was definitely seeing as a given, and the Fed just followed through. Uh, it's the first time uh, in recent history that the Fed is actually doing what they forecasted, because they always do like, oh, we're going to do three or four. But at the end, in the past couple of years, it was like one uh, year. So the fact that they're following through, it's it's big. It's not, a, it's not the expectation. It's not that this will continue for long. And I think that is what the market is looking for and was looking for in the statement and in uh, Chair Powell's testimony or uh, press conference. What is going to happen next? So I think the, the Fed is starting to put some uh, dovish uh, forecast for 2020, 2021. So the, the growth of the economy is definitely slowing down, uh, according to them. So that it was a bit of a cost for concern, but the the now the, the U.S. is very strong. The economy is growing. We've seen the employment uh, very strong, and it's just uh, the Fed is following that uh, based on inflationary pressures. And the forecast for next year is for three hikes, and that even after President Trump uh, last month complained about higher interest rates. Is that where you're standing on that particular prediction, three hikes next year? I'm not as optimistic as the Fed, or I don't think the Fed will go as uh, hard as three. I think inflation is going to taper off uh, before that. Even Chair Powell was confronted uh, by a question on like, what what do, do you say to Donald Trump when he says that? And he basically had to say the Fed is an independent body. Uh, we, we look at inflation. We don't look at trade. So whatever is happening with tariffs, that's not our domain. So I think I think three is a, a bit higher in my sort of estimate. I think one or two, uh, depending on how the economy does. And but I think the global impact of the trade war will start to sort of be felt if things continue as we've seen. The economic forecast for next year was uh, for rising growth, wasn't it? Yes, sort of that continuation. Uh, we're starting to see that sort of GDP is sort of in a strong uh, upward trend. The same for sort of inflation based on employment. So employment will continue to be strong. There's more jobs or there will be more jobs to people available for them. So that will create uh, employers having to pay more uh, to fill those positions. And that will create inflation, which the Fed will try to uh, manage by raising rates. Was this all priced into markets, Alfonso? How did markets react um, to the statement that Mr. Powell made? I think it was a combination of factors. I think the market was definitely just uh, expecting the the rate hike, uh, sort of a, a neutral uh, statement. But what we got was a bit a bit more uh, hawkish slash dovish, and I, I'll, I'll explain why I I go back and forth because that's what the Fed did. Uh, I think uh, the once the statement was released, the dollar 
very predictably uh, was down. It was just this is as expected, just met expectations, nothing new. And but then everyone was ex was waiting for Powell. And what he did is just try to uh, be a cheerleader for the economy. That things are great. He he basically took uh, the two main sort of the very problematic issues, which is the White House intervention and also sort of the trade war uh, conversations out. And if you take that out, then yes, the picture does look particularly rosy and uh, in, in line for more rate hikes in the future from the Fed. Let's talk about oil prices, Alfonso. They're certainly set to spike with um, OPEC and Trump going head to head. Do you think it's likely we might see a hundred dollars a barrel in the near future? I think that's a real possibility. And and one of the reasons why is the Donald Trump administration. So the, what what he's doing and what he's saying are sometimes at odds, and this is a perfect example. So when the US put back the sanctions on Iranian exports, that means that we're we're taking a, a big chunk of supply out of the market. And definitely that that's gonna push prices up. Uh, but then you have sort of President Trump saying that the OPEC is not uh, solid following through. Uh, they are just keeping prices high and they're not putting up with their end of the bargain, which is like if they, 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 that the U.S. has protected them and then they need something in return. And that something is low oil prices. So they're basically urging OPEC to uh, stop the production limit agreement that they have currently with uh, big major producers, including Russia and just uh, start pumping more oil into the market to bring prices down. But again, the only reason the prices are at current levels, or one of the main reasons, is the Iranian sanctions that uh, take place in November. And the fact that the US has been very tough on what constitutes uh, a relationship with Iran. So if you have any type of relationship with Iran, there'll be fierce penalties uh, that will be followed through by the US uh, so nobody wants to be in that position. So even China has started reducing their uh, consumption or their contracts with Iran. So that is definitely keeping prices up. And the it puts Saudi Arabia as the de facto leader of OPEC in a very uh, uncomfortable position because it's they're caught between sort of a Trump market forces and Trump uh, pressure. So that's not definitely something where you want to be. And that's when that's going to dictate the pace of oil in in the coming weeks, what the so the the words from President Trump came uh, days before the OPEC was set to meet uh, with uh, major producers to talk about this uh, limit output agreement, and nothing was said. So the market said, "Oh, they're they're not really paying attention." But on the back channels, it seems that Saudi Arabia is ready to start pumping more uh, to try to offset that uh, fall in or that uh, gap in left by Iranian crude. But again, it's it's a big market, and the expectations are that energy demand has not changed much, but the supply has, has suffered uh, a lot of disruptions, be it weather-related or geopolitical nature. So we'll see how that uh, plays out between sort of Saudi Arabia with the rest of the OPEC and Russia, and also with the U.S. as a because one of the interesting parts of the UN address, well. One of the many interesting parts of the U.S. US address uh, that President Trump gave to the U.N. General Assembly was that he said that the U.S. is is now the main producer of oil in the world. And depending on how you count your barrels, he is right. And definitely shale output has uh, helped the U.S. sort of reach this uh, and the way technology has advanced in, in the industry. But the way he said it, he was basically saying that 
if the OPEC won't increase production, I could bring more capacity or more uh, supply in line. And the U.S. has the reserves uh, for it's it's definitely it's for emergencies when weather related or otherwise. So they have they, they, he was sort of hinting that he could tap that. Well, almost immediately next day, uh, Secretary of Energy uh, Perry said that that definitely they won't use that. But the fact that it's he put it out there sort of to sense the market, that's that's uh, something that could definitely uh, make the oil price drop and take it away from current levels and definitely not with $100. But it depends. It depends who is actually, who has more uh, to gain from doing that. And, and that's what we'll continue to see in the following weeks. And how much capacity is left with the shale oil producers, uh, Alfonso, because um, obviously they have an important break-even point, and we're now above that, and uh, they'll be certainly more inclined to produce as much as they can. Yes, and that's one of the things that hasn't happened in the sector, that we haven't seen like an explosion of shale. Uh, and there's lots of reasons. There's like uh, even tax implications on why they're not sort of uh, ramping up. But the the U.S. right now sort of a, the U.S. shale producers are now sort of a sleeping giant. Uh, that uh, they they were the main reason that in 2014 or the OPEC started overproducing just to try to uh, get them off the market by creating losses uh, with oil low, low oil prices and that strategy backfired. So now we have a scenario where oil prices are are comfortable, but they haven't really increased that production. So there's still that that sup- there's definitely supply that could come online. So reaching the hundred dollars um, per barrel is going to be uh, is going to be very difficult, and it's going to be more on the geopolitical uh, risk side than on the actual supply and demand. Right. Let's move to the other side of the Atlantic and uh, the Italian budget, uh, Alfonso. And we've seen stocks in Italy plunge today as much as four percent after populists won the battle to increase. Uh, the deficit, the finance minister bowing to pressure to fund uh, universal income and tax cuts. And it looks like Italy is now on a on a collision course uh, with the EU and Italian bond yields has certainly surged. Oh, definitely. I mean, it, we're, we're, we definitely saw this happening uh, since the elections and the result of the sort of the fractured uh, political parties. And we knew the sort of the, the rise of populism, not only in Europe, but uh, all over the world, really. So what we're seeing is now that uh, this budget is, I would say, is still slightly in line. So it's, it's still not sort of the final word. It's still sort of it could be massaged. And it came at 2.4 uh, of GDP, which is above what it was the what, the, what they were told or suggested by Brussels. So there's definitely going to be some questions on that. The main question is just like that. It's, it's going to re-spark all this uh, Italexit exit and... What does being part of the European project entail and if they're willing to pay the cost for that? And what we're seeing right now, it's like when we talk, when we look at Greece, it, it was a, a smaller country and a, a, in regards to sort of the European project. And it's but it, it, it's a bigger head if they have to butt heads with uh, the EU. And it it's again, it could, could it be the beginning of the end of the Europe of the Eurozone? Maybe. It's uh, something that the union has really have to take a hard look because it's it's not the first time that a country has gone over those, but it's one where it's like there's a lot of attention and with relationships at this point and even the uh, sort of the Brexit conversation happening at the same time, it becomes really important that uh, all members are in agreement of something. And I think this brings an opportunity either for 
uh, unity or it starts sort of a, uh, tipping the scales a bit more towards uh, a, a total end of the European Union. Does this in any way help Theresa May and her in Brexit negotiations? Interesting question, because it's definitely something that uh, the UK could probably provide sort of a better partnership or regardless saying like, okay, maybe you have some issues internally. Uh, we will never give you those type of issues. We'll Our model, maybe it's more... Uh, it's more suited for going forward. Maybe there's something that they could use as a sort of a, we are the alternative to sort of a, being part of the union. This, we could work on this and and maybe Italy could then follow through on and, and joining our model instead of uh, just thinking about it as a uh, as a full divorce. Maybe, maybe. I mean, the, I think the main problem uh, facing Theresa May at the moment is the, so how fractured her own party is, how fractured even the, British British citizens are on on the idea of Brexit, on what is Brexit, and could Brexit be reversed? So I think there there are some similarities, but I think it's it, it's something that it it definitely rises in priority for the EU because it's 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 in the house, so they have to uh, definitely talk about and try to solve this and be on the same page as soon as possible. And with Brexit, it's it's a bit. Uh, there's a lot of opinions. There's a lot of uh, ideas on the table from all sides, and it, it's it's just coming together with a very tight deadline on 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 what could decide the future of the relationship between so the, those economic blocks. The question is whether the EU now wants Theresa May to be able to fashion a deal that she can get through Parliament, so that both the UK and the EU can get on with the divorce, or there may be some people within the European Union who are thinking. If there is more chaos, uh, the government may fall or they'll may a second referendum and maybe Brexit isn't going to happen at all. Yes, I think it gives more ammunition to uh, the Brexit support, like the, the clean break Brexit supporters. So the no deal uh, people just saying, OK, why do we even want a deal? Like they they definitely don't have their house in order. And if we're going to make a deal with something that doesn't exist and uh, maybe two years down the line, why go through all this trouble and just... Uh, and as I think Boris Johnson becomes subservient to a regime and just break away. So yes, it feeds to that uh, uh, conversation, and it, it definitely makes things harder because if if the other side of the negotiating table is not really focused 100% on what's being presented because they still have to face those issues back at home, then yes, it it it, it complicates matters and it it favors a, a no deal Brexit. Okay. Let's move away from Brexit now and talk about the trade war between China and the United States. I mean, we, I've seen some economists predicting uh, possible uh, the Chinese yuan may depreciate by another 10% uh, against the dollar if the United States continues to raise tariffs on China imports. Would you agree with that? Uh, yes, 10% is, it's in, would be in line. And again, it's not a free-floating currency, so there's also... Uh, some uh, level of intervention by the central bank. So th that could be possible. And if it is, it will be, uh, if not with the blessing, yes, with some of the direction from the PBOC. So right now, the the other side of the conversation has also been talked about as well. Like, how, how could this impact the U.S.? Like, you cannot really just start uh, putting tariffs in all the products that you import because then you're just going to create uh, inflation. And there's that's going to hit uh, jobs in the States when it's uh, uncertain industries. 
you are not just going it, to, it's, it's something that it's very easy to put tariffs, but it's very hard to just uh, boost those uh, enterprises that were hurt by the competition. So it's, if you want to make sort of uneven or as, uh, as some people say, it's a more even competition, it's, it's, it's a very long process that I don't think the, the, the United States right now is ready to face that. And I think that's uh, another internal battle that the Trump administration has to face with the different governors of different states that just depend on global trade and putting tariffs, it's definitely putting on the spot. Um, and I think that's something that even the market right now, is, it's a bit more savvy. And it, there's been a bit of fatigue in terms of sort of the headlines. We saw sort of the big numbers, 200 billion, 267 billion, and retaliation from China sort of uh, escalating. But at the heart of it, there's that's still a bit of like midterm. So in the short term, it's been very small, very like just still sort of posturing from both sides and rhetoric flying back and forth. And so in, in some sense, it, it could be downgraded as a skirmish. So it's not a full out war. There's still sort of a, a disagreement, but we haven't reached sort of that, that stage. We might be heading towards it if the skirmish doesn't get uh, addressed soon enough. And we're starting to see that the, the signs that the China talks have been postponed, even sort of the NAFTA talks that, uh, that right now the U.S. is having with Canada, that's not uh, giving us a particularly positive signal of where the U.S. is regarding uh, global trade. But this can change and, and it's expected to change as uh, there's more pressure internally from uh, Republican and Democratic uh, senators and governors. Okay, Alfonso, before we let you go, could you tell us a bit about next week and what you're looking forward to? Next week is going to be a, very, a really interesting one in the markets. I think we have, we'll have have uh, in, in the UK, in the US in particular, we're going to have sort of manufacturing PMIs and service PMIs. So we'll know a bit of sort of the forward indicators of where the economies are and what, what the expectations are from sort of from the fundamental side. In the States, we're also we're going to finish with the unemployment uh, rate and the non-farm payrolls report, which will give us a good idea of sort of what was the Fed looking at and what is their take and, and if this can continue. I think we'll, we'll start to see a bit uh, a solid job growth numbers and more importantly, wage growth in the States. Just because of what we discussed in the OPEC, we'll see that uh, crude oil inventories in the States, the weekly crude inventories, it's going to be really important in guiding the market, especially now. We're starting to see probably a, a, a buildup in the U.S., and, and that will serve a measure against what the OPEC does during the week. Okay, Alfonso Esparza in Toronto, Senior Market Analyst for uh, ANDA. Thank you very much indeed. Oh, it's a pleasure, Johnny. You can join us again next week on the Oanda Market Insights podcast. Craig Earlham will be back. Don't forget, you can also listen to this podcast on iTunes and wherever you find your podcasts. Have a very good week. the Oanda podcast from the team behind Jazz FM's Business Breakfast, a daily early morning 30-minute briefing for the day ahead. On air from 6am, listen to Jazz FM on DAB, online or just ask Alexa.